to our scripture for today. Uh, it's, it is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself had received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning. As Pastor David said, before we dive into our passage today, let me take a few moments just to talk a little bit about what we prayed for earlier. And let me say that I'm doing so with some hesitation, not because I'm afraid to do that, but because I want to say something more than thoughts and prayers. At the same time, I realize there's no way that I can be exhaustive, which means I'm going to leave things out that you've probably been thinking about all week long, which runs the danger then of maybe me being a little less helpful than if I said nothing. So that's part of my hesitation. Here's the other part of my hesitation. I am personally very upset when people use the tragedy of someone else's life to promote themselves, to promote their organization, to promote their own agenda. I think we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years got a, uh, an email from an organization this past week from the guy at the top who said absolutely nothing regarding the numerous other previous mass shootings, but now he has to say something, and so all of my cynicism comes out when I get this, and I think, why? <laughs> oh, right, it's because now there is some media threshold that's been reached where you feel like you need to say something or you're going to hear about it. The email was everything that I expected overly dramatic, calling for things that he has no ability to make happen. And I think, how is this helpful to anyone? You're predictable. You have no solutions. You are just churning people up. And in a very important sense, you are re-traumatizing everyone and giving people no real help. I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> so what can I say today that might be a little different? Part of what we're doing on Sunday morning is we're trying to learn how to handle and respond to life in a fallen world. That's why God gave us the Bible, right? It's to navigate how do we as broken people live in a broken world with a God who is doing everything in his power to restore the brokenness. It's what we're trying to learn on Sunday mornings when life is what? It's a little more calm. And it's so that when the emotional temperature in our lives is hot, we have something to fall back on something maybe in the back of our minds to guide us. So what did we do this past Lenten season? We looked at Matthew 24, where Jesus spends a lot of time helping us understand the misery that it is to live in this world. 
And of the many things that we looked at, one of them was that he told us that we will hear of wars and rumors of war until he returns. In other words, we should not be surprised when people do horrific, violent, unconscionable things to each other. He told us to expect that. This past week has been tragic, and it's not just this past week, it's the past several weeks. And it's expected. Jesus said so. But then he went on to tell us what we should do about that. In other words, knowing the worst of humanity does not lead to paralysis. Instead, it leads to action precisely because we're not surprised by it. It doesn't mean we accept it. Again, you read the life of Jesus, you realize he didn't accept it. Absolutely love John 11. Jesus' friend, close friend, Lazarus, died. Jesus goes to the tomb knowing what he's about to do, that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does that, he meets one of Lazarus' sisters. And when Jesus saw her weeping and all the people with her weeping, we're told that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled within himself. Those two Greek words, deeply moved and troubled, are, are so strong, they're really impossible to get the full weight across in just a couple of words. It means something like he was indignant. He was angry. He was stirred up almost to the point of mental distress. Now think about that for a moment. This is not the first person that Jesus had ever encountered who died. He knows what he's about to do, raise him from the dead, but you get a glimpse here of how angry he is at death. How angry that it robs the individual of their humanity, how angry that it robs people of each other. And Jesus feels that deep down inside of his core. These events of these last several weeks should not surprise us, but they should strongly move us. If you were strongly moved this week, be encouraged. There's something of God in that for you. You're responding like Jesus does. And part of being moved, though, is not to just stew, but it means that we are moved toward each other. Because Jesus spends time with both of Lazarus' sisters after Lazarus died, but before he raised him from the dead. He spent time with them to comfort them, to counsel them, to help them process the world that they're experiencing. Renewal needs to be that kind of a community. So please don't wait for an email to come from the church to hear how, or, or wait to hear how the churches respond on Sunday. We're not always going to respond because I don't want to be part of that cranking up kind of stuff. But please do go to each other personally. Go and be the church to each other. Listen to each other, grieve with each other, share your thoughts with each other, counsel each other, find hope in Christ with each other. And as you're doing that with each other, remind yourselves to go outward, to think of the people around you who don't have the same access to the resources that you do. See, again, part of why we're here on this earth, experiencing what our friends and neighbors do, is so that we can share with them the hope that we find in Christ. That means we have to find hope with him first. But when we do, that, that really should show. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And that means that we should not be surprised when someone wants to know, what are you thinking? How are you processing these events? When they want to know, how are you handling sending your kids back to school? How are you dealing with the emotional turmoil? Are, are, are you exhausted? It's an opportunity to share with them. Or maybe it's a chance to help someone realize that the solutions of this world are always going to come up short. There are things that we can do, should do, to limit the danger that other people are exposed to. And yet those things are always going to stop short of being able to change someone's heart. That reality does not leave us hopeless or apathetic. It didn't leave Jesus hopeless or apathetic. Again, think about Jesus. He entered into this world knowing it was full of danger, knowing that there was a 100% certainty, guarantee, that it was going to kill him. There is no greater tragedy than our creator being killed by the people that he made. And there is no greater hope in this world than that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again for those same people.
Hang on to both of those. There's more tragedy in those sentences than this world can hold. And there's more hope than the new heavens and the new creation will be able to hold. Let me invite you to pray with me one more time. Lord, we do grieve, each in our own way, the horror of what we've recently seen. Lord, the, the shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde, the shooting at the supermarket in Buffalo, shooting at the church in Southern California, Lord, the shooting, shootings that we read about in the news this morning from last night. Lord, we do ask that you would be near to those people, that you would send your spirit to grieve with them, to comfort them. But I pray even more that you would send your people. Lord, that your people would be captured by what moved you. Lord, you, you saw our misery on this planet, and it moved you to us. And so I pray, not just for your people in general, I pray for us here at Renewal, Lord, that we would have your courage and your compassion that you would ground us in a relationship with you that is so vibrant, it does calm our hearts and our minds, but it also drives us back out into our communities. Lord, I pray for us that we would be your hands and feet here that now express what your heart is like for this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Switching gears. We're picking back up our teaching series this morning in the book of Revelation. Jesus is talking to his church. He's selected several, seven local churches that together represent his whole church. And we learned in chapter 1 that he is among them, that he's actively present with his people as both priest and king, and he's there to serve us as we live in a very difficult world. And one of the primary ways that he serves us is he talks to us. He counsels us. You read through these letters, and you realize that he tells us what we're doing well, and he makes us aware of the thing that, things in us that need to change. And today we come to the centerpiece of what Jesus has to say to his church. This is the fourth letter, which means that there are three letters on either side, which then sort of focuses your attention in on this one. It's also the longest of the seven letters. And so you realize there's something here that we have to take extra seriously. And it's not because this church was all that important. Thyatira had no religious or political significance in the Roman Empire. The church that was there did not stand out in any way. And so it's not the church itself that makes this a crucial letter. It's what's taking place within the church. Now, if you compare this church with the other churches, you find a contrast between Thyatira and the first one, the church at Ephesus. The Ephesian church was commended for their doctrinal purity. They worked really, really hard at thinking theologically and making sure that they only believed what was true. It sounds really good until you realize that they were a church that didn't love, that all of their good doctrine, all of their good thoughts did not connect them better with Jesus, and it didn't move them to care well for anybody else. They're what we would call legalists today, people who cared about ideas but not a whole lot for the God who gave the ideas and not for the people who needed to benefit from the ideas. Their good thinking did not result in lives that reflected how God lives his. Thyatira didn't have that problem. They had the opposite problem. They loved really, really well, but they thought poorly. So, for instance, Jesus commends them, verse 19, for the goodness of their lives. I know your works, he says, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus says to them, you're living really well, and it's obvious. The, the fruit of the Spirit is just pouring out of you. Love, faith, service, patience, endurance. Everyone can see that you're taking on the character of God himself. And even more than that, you're growing. You're maturing. You're becoming more and more godly, more love, more faith, more service and patient endurance. Your latter works exceed your first. And that might surprise some of you. Some of you have come from families that were never pleased with you, never satisfied. They expected excellence. They expected you to excel. And so when you did, they didn't say anything to you. It was kind of like 
encouraging you for breathing. There's no reason to do that. You're just supposed to. And so you're not used to hearing encouragement. You're used to hearing criticism, places where you miss the mark. And what do you learn here at Thyatira? God is not like that. What do you hear him saying? He looks for good things in his people. He does not take their goodness or their growth in goodness for granted. He looks for it. He notices it, and then he calls people out for it. He speaks to them about it. This is the kind of thing that God says to his people. This is part of the way that his voice sounds. This is the kind of stuff that I hope you have that sense of him speaking to you. You should anticipate him looking for the good in you, looking for where his spirit is at work in you, and calling you out for that, calling you out for good things. If you are not used to hearing God speak like that, ask him for it. It's part of his character. Ask him, point out, Lord, Lord Father, where, where do you see me growing? There are areas like this in you. If his spirit is at work in you, you are growing. Ask him to point that out to you. Jesus sees how his people are going to be more like him, and he tells them that he sees that in them. That, I think, probably surprises some of us. What he does next, however, should surprise the rest of us. Because Jesus doesn't camp out there. In fact, that's the shortest part of this letter. And he goes on to talk about what's not okay among them. Which, again, if you think about it, that's a little surprising, right? If people are growing in love, wouldn't you think that's enough? That in time, that growth would wipe out any negatives. And you realize that's not how Jesus sees it. He thinks there's something here that's vital for them to see about themselves. Not because he's critical by nature, he's just encouraged them, but because there's something else there in the church. Something that if they don't pay attention to it, it's going to effectively undermine all of the good stuff that he just got done talking about. Something actually that is already undermining all the good stuff. Some of God's servants, these ones who are growing in the fruit of the Spirit, some are being seduced, led into sin. It's already taking place. And so verse 20, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's a woman there who teaches God's people that it's okay to do what the world around them does. That's bad. There's a danger inside the church. They're not facing external persecution, like we saw with the church of Smyrna or the church at Pergamum, danger from outside. Instead, this church has a cancer inside, something that's attacking them from within. That's bad. What's worse, however, is that Jesus says, you're letting her. You're tolerating her. You tolerate a false prophet, a false teacher. The problem here at Thyatira is the mirror image of what's happening at Ephesus. This is a church that is full of love, but it's love that's being twisted because they're buying into a theology that's leading them away from the Lord. And so the root issue for them is that they're not thinking. They're not taking what this prophetess is saying and comparing it with Scripture to see if it's really true. They're not doing that. And they should. They should know better. They do know better. Because what's happening as they keep letting her spread her ideas, they're seeing the impact of her teaching on their members. They're watching people in the church taking on the sexual practices of their society. They're watching brothers and sisters in Christ worship the same things that their unbelieving friends and neighbors are worshiping. They see all of this, and they tolerate it. They say, oh, it's okay. It's not that bad. We'll just let her keep doing what she's doing. Jesus sees this, puts it right at the center of what he wants to say to his church, and he says, this is the central thing that I want my churches to be aware of. It's the danger that I want all of my churches to guard against because it's so easy for any of them to fall into this. And so humility this morning means that we have to take seriously, we could do this. That we could tolerate ideas that would corrupt what God has said. 
that we could easily accept ideas that would end up hurting our brothers and sisters. This is not a danger for some churches or some other denominations. But Renewal Mainline could embrace doctrines and theologies that mitigate against God and hurt his people. Now, to better understand why that's so easy to do, we'll consider three things this morning. First, why would a church tolerate a false teacher in the first place? Second, what's so bad about tolerating a false teacher? And third, what does Jesus do instead of tolerating? Why would you tolerate what's so bad about tolerating and what does Jesus do instead? First, what makes tolerating a false teacher appealing? Why would you do this? It's because in some way, if you listen to them, your life here on earth gets a little easier. Thyatira is not a religious or political center, but it was a city full of very powerful guilds. It was a city full of tradespeople. And if you did not belong to a guild, it was very hard to practice your trade, very hard to make a living. And so your economic health depended on belonging to a guild, all of which had their own gods and goddesses to which the guild held festivals that involved meals, often some kind of sexual activity. And if you were a member of the guild, you were expected to attend, you were expected to participate. Now let me take just a, a brief aside here for a moment. The Greek word there that's translated sexual immorality, that means any kind of sexual activity outside of one man and one woman who are married to each other. So whenever you come across the phrase sexual immorality in the scripture, it refers to all other kinds of sexual activity outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage. So, solo sex, sex before marriage, sex with someone who's married to someone else, same-sex sex, from God's perspective, it's all sexual immorality, something that's always wrong all the time. And yet Jezebel here says it's okay. Now, why would she teach that? Why would she teach something that goes directly against what God plainly says throughout Scripture. It's so that then you can participate in the guilds. It's so that you would not have to pay an economic or a social cost to following Christ. You could still work and you could still hang out with your guild friends. That's why people were listening. She's holding something out that they wanted, something that would reduce the tension between them as Christians and their society. There's a payoff that made her teaching attractive. And that's always the case, right? Aren't there things in the Bible that you struggle with? There are for me. Things that God is really, really clear about, but that you personally kind of wish were a little different. Things that you know do not sit well with the culture that you feel most comfortable in. Things that you don't really want your non-Christian friends to know that God says. Things like when and how you can express your sexuality. Or things like he made men and women different. And not simply biologically, but different in ways that reflect different aspects of him. Or that political systems and external laws will never create a perfectly just world. Because they can never overcome the urge to evil that you find inside every human being. Or that science and technology are not guides to morality. Because while they can tell you what something is, they can never tell you why something is or where that thing is going. Do you think your non-Christian friends would look at you the same way if you start unpacking these things with them over lunch? Or would you pay a cost? Now imagine, along comes Jezebel. And she says, look, it's a false dilemma. You really don't have to pay anything. If you buy into what I'm saying, I can show you how to blend Scripture with the modern world in such a way that'll remove all the tension. Now you can have both. You can have Jesus and the world you're used to. You can go back to lunch. Problem solved. Our CGs have been reading a book by Rachel Gilson called Born Again This Way. In that book, she details her journey from being an atheistic lesbian to a follower of Jesus. And at one point, as she's becoming more and more interested in God, not yet a Christian, she kind of has this vague idea that, that God did not support homosexuality. 
but she ran into a lesbian couple who told her there's no problem, that their lifestyle was completely compatible with being a Christian, and they offered her something to read, something that taught there is no real conflict between the lifestyle that she wanted and what God called people to, and she's really excited until she actually read the scripture passages that the material referenced. And she realized that they didn't say what the author taught that they said. In her words, the interpretations of the author looked like a misreading of what was plain in the Bible text, that same gender sexual contact was forbidden by God. At which point she felt really foolish. She said, I felt shame. How could I have been stupid enough to think that there really had just been a millennia-old mix-up. How could she think that? Because it's what she wanted to hear, which is exactly how you and I get caught, too. We're no different. We want someone to teach us that Scripture says what it doesn't. And when someone does teach us that, what? We, we tolerate them. Rachel Gilson discovered, however, that when you even when you want that, as soon as you read the scripture, you know it's not true. Meyer Sternberg is professor emeritus at Tel Aviv University. He's an Israeli literary critic and biblical scholar. He talks about the Bible as being a foolproof composition. Here's what he means. By foolproof composition, I mean that the Bible is difficult to read, easy to underread and overread, even misread, but virtually impossible to counter-read. The essentials are made transparent to all comers. The storyline, the world order, the value system, the old and new controversies must not blind us to the measure of agreement in this regard. In other words, read the Bible in good faith and you'll get the point. Because it's impossible to read it and come away thinking that it says the opposite of what it does. Unless, unless you don't read in good faith, unless you really want it to say something else, in which case it's very tempting and it's very easy to find a false teacher, someone who will produce an old or a new controversy, someone who will help you, who will tell you that it says what you want to hear, who will help reduce the friction that you feel living here in this world as a follower of Christ. And that danger increases with how invested you are in this world. It increases with the more business that you transact in this world, or the more that you've been exposed to what and how this world thinks, or the more that you've been taught by it. The greater your investment in this world, the more friction you will feel with it. And along with that friction, the more temptation you'll feel to find some way to reduce that friction. That's why point one, you would tolerate someone who teaches that Scripture says things that it doesn't. And that's why you and me, living in the Philadelphia suburbs, having gone to secular colleges and universities, doing business here, raising our families here, that's why this is a particular danger for us. It's a central danger that we have to constantly be aware of. Point two. Why, though, is tolerating someone who teaches something like this so bad? I know it sounds like an obvious question, right? It's not what God says, therefore it's bad. Yes, but why? Why is it bad? Here again, what's the whole point of the letter to Thyatira? It's to think. It's to learn to think theologically, to think like God thinks and not to think like Jezebel thinks. So, let's think. Why is it bad to tolerate her and her teaching? It's because when you listen to her, you're no longer looking at life through the lens that God does. And so you no longer define problems of the human condition in the terms that he does, which means that you no longer agree that the number one problem is a breakdown in our relationship with him, a problem that then spills over into a breakdown in our relationships with each other. And if that's not our number one problem, you won't think then that the gospel is the number one solution to all of life. And if you don't think that the gospel is the solution to all of life, you're not going to try to figure out how it's the solution to all of life. 
you won't apply the gospel to every area of life, which means that over time, you won't think that the gospel applies to very much at all. And so you'll look for hope, you'll look for solutions in other places. You'll still come to church, you'll think that Jesus dying for you is nice. But what you really need to live a good life will be found in some other resource somewhere else. In other words, the way that you think does have something to do with the way that you live. And that's why God puts such an emphasis here in this letter on works. He emphasizes that there's a difference between her works, Jezebel's works, and his works. In verse 22, he calls people to repent of her works, while in verse 26, he calls people to keep his works to the end. The way that you think, the teaching that you follow, hers or his, is important because it's tied then to the way that you live your life. And in the end, that has everything to do with the way that you love, the way that you treat others, or to use the word that Jesus does with Thyatira, with the works that you do with others. Let's try it this way. You've all grown up in a family that did things a certain way. What happens then? You grow up and you move out a little bit. You might visit a friend's family or at some point you move away to college and you discover, oh, it doesn't have to be the way that we did this at home. You discover, most people discover this in college, that it really is possible. You really can eat dessert before dinner. Some nights you don't have to eat dinner at all. You can just have dessert. Doesn't have to be the way that you did it in your family. Or you discover that some people eat while watching the TV or video, and other people never eat with something running in the background. You discover that some people eat all together as a family, others never do. Some have a fairly rigid schedule for when they eat, others' schedule's a little more loose. And when you move away from your family, you discover that the way that you would like to have dinner might be different from the way that your family does. And so you do what? You develop your own patterns, your own works, your own way of doing things. What happens, though, when you come back home? Do you insist now that everybody else live the way that you want to according to your works? Or do you find yourself slotting back into how the family lives according to the family's works? We all know this. You readopt the family's works. Why? That's what it means to love them. Those works express the way that your family understands love, the way that they think about love. Same is true of God's family. There are ways of living with each other that love each other well. God lays those out in Scripture. And so in Scripture, he tells us about himself. He tells us about ourselves, what we're like. And then based on that knowledge, he tells us how to live, how to love, what kind of works to do with each other. Now keep in mind, those works are not part of what make you part of his family. You can't work your way into his family. You can't love your way in. That's not how you become family. You become family because he offers to adopt you, offers to bring you in, not because you deserve it, but because that's the kind of love he has. So when he gives you rules and laws and principles, when he teaches you, those rules and laws and principles come from his love, from his heart of self-forgetting, sacrificial love. Those rules and laws and principles are not going to make you good enough for him, Instead, they teach you how to live with him and with each other in his family. They express how the family thinks after you're part of the family. This is why any other kind of teaching is dangerous. Because it comes into the family and says, oh no, there's an even better way to love, to live, to work than what God has told us. His way was okay for a time, but we've progressed since then. Now we understand people. We understand the world better. So here, let me teach you a better way. When you tolerate that, when you buy into it, what are you doing? You're bringing home, you're bringing into God's family a different kind of love, a different kind of love than the kind that moved God to invite you into his family in the first place. That's why Jesus names the prophetess 
Jezebel. Probably was not her real name. Jesus here is trying to shock his people. He's saying to them, you're kind of okay with her and with what she's doing. Even all of you who haven't fully bought in, you tolerate her. But that's because you don't see her for who she is and you don't see what she's doing for what it is. Let me try to wake you up. This is exactly what happened to Israel when Jezebel became queen. Long before Jesus was born, one of Israel's worst kings, Ahab, married a woman from outside of Israel. Her name was Jezebel. And instead of throwing away her old gods and her old allegiances, like Ruth did when she joined Israel, Jezebel held on to hers. Even worse than that, she promoted them. She tried to destroy worshiping God, tried to replace him. And so she was responsible for slaughtering the prophets of God until only Elijah was left. She installed 450 prophets of her god, Baal, to oversee and introduce Baal worship. She threatened to kill Elijah after God used him to show that God is God and Baal is not. And she even had a man murdered so that Ahab, her husband, could take his property and use it for a vegetable garden. Those are the kinds of works that came out of her theological commitments, out of the way that she thought about life. And she brought that teaching into Israel, teaching that promoted values and viewpoints that separated people from God, that ruined their relationships with each other. And Jesus says to Thyatira, that's what you're letting happen in my church. You're tolerating Jezebel all over again. And so you realize here that tolerating is what? It feels like love, but it's a counterfeit. It's love without truth. It's being supportive of someone while they actively run away from God and while they teach others to do the same. Which, if you think about it, just one layer more, puts the church's larger mission at risk. Because instead of showcasing the kind of community that God builds, we become a community that reflects not his values, but our society's values. And we end up looking no different from the way the rest of the world lives. But we tie God's name to it. And so what we end up communicating is this is what God is like. This is what his nature and his character are like. This is what his people do that he's pleased with. Look at us. Look at how we live. Look at our works. And you should see God a little bit more clearly. And people look in and they say, well, you're just like the rest of us. You do all the same things. Guess God really has nothing to offer. Unpack it just a little. And you can see point two why tolerating is bad on so many levels. It's not only bad for God's people. It's bad for those who are outside the church, for those who are not yet God's people. And so point three, Jesus doesn't simply tolerate. He does something radically different. He judges. It's really strong. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw Jezebel onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. Jesus searches minds and hearts, and he judges based on what he finds. So he knows who's flirting with Jezebel's ideas, who's committing adultery with her, and he'll bring suffering onto them so that they learn that that's not the path they want to go down. He also knows, however, who's already bought into her teaching, who her children are. He says he'll strike them dead to protect the rest of the church. This is one of those sides of our God that our society struggles with, that gives us tension between us and our society. We think there should be a more gentle approach here, one that we would think of as more loving. And here's one place where we are tempted to soften that friction. I'm tempted to soften the friction. Where we'd rather frame love like our world does instead of like God does. Let me say it this way. It's a little provocative. We're okay with a soft violence. We're okay with false teachers that lead people astray. 
that lead people away from God and from each other, that danger people, endanger people's eternal souls. We're okay with that. Just live and let live. That's a violence that we're all right with. We're a little taken aback, however, when God says, no, I'm serious. This ends now. I'm not just someone who talks. I act. And I act to remove evil so that it can no longer hurt others. I'm not talking about some distant point in the future. I do so now for the sake of my servants who are being seduced and led away from me. Jesus unapologetically says, this is who I am. And yet this is a hard God for our society to embrace. Hard, like I said, sometimes for me to embrace. Feels a little too strong. I do trust him, but I feel myself pulling back a little. So if you're a little bit like me, how do you go about trusting him? How do you trust that his approach, which is very different from tolerance, that's the world you and I swim in every day, how do we learn to trust him when he takes these kind of drastic steps to remove evil from his people? I'm going to go over this really quickly. There's, there's four things in this passage. I'm going to go over this really quickly. One reason that is obscure and three that are really overt. We'll start with the one that's obscure. Verse 18. Talk about his bronze feet. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 63 talks about God being so powerful that his feet trample the wicked. And the image there has to do with God's power over evil, specifically over evil people. He tramples them. Okay, that's part of it. There's more. Prophet Daniel had a vision. It's recorded in chapter 7 of his book. And in that vision, there are four beasts that rise up out of the sea, one after another. And these beasts, he's told later, represent human nations that succeed each other. And because they're beasts... They're giving us God's perspective, God's belief, that in one way or another, all human nations are really inhuman. That none of them are what God intended human civilization to be. That instead of imaging the kind of community that God would build, one full of people, we build communities that have more in common with brutal beasts. Fourth one is really grotesque. Daniel tells us in verse 7 that it was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. In other words, this nation, this beast kingdom is incredibly powerful, but it's a kingdom that you don't want to live in. You don't want its authority over you. It doesn't use its power for the good of people, for the good of human flourishing. Instead, it uses its power to ruin, to destroy life. And as Daniel is told later, it uses its power to devour the whole world. Now pay attention because this piece is important. When Daniel asks somebody in his vision what this beast means, he describes the vision, but he adds something to that description that he didn't say earlier. He says it's the most terrifying beast. It has iron teeth and bronze claws. Bronze claws, claws of power, claws that exercise beast-like authority, claws that destroy human beings, that destroy people made in the image of God. That's how it uses its power. This last kingdom, however, is itself destroyed because one like a son of man comes. And this image of God, this Son of Man, then reigns over all the nations and his kingdom lasts forever. Do you see the contrast here? What is it that sweeps away all the inhumanity of earthly nations? It's someone made in the image of God, someone who reflects all the perfect goodness that God is, someone human, not just another beast. This human replaces all of the beast kingdoms. So when you see Jesus' bronze feet in Revelation, they're juxtaposed with the bronze claws that rule over the earth now. And you're being told that Jesus has the power to defeat any power on earth, especially any power that ruins human beings. But he does so in a different kind of way than the beast kingdoms do. He crushes with holiness, using God's power not to crush and devour and trample everything in his path, but to crush and devour and trample the evil 
that crushes and tramples and devours everything in its path. Jesus rules over his church with that power so that evil will not ruin his church. That's one of the reasons why you can trust Jesus when he takes drastic steps to remove evil from his church. He's only taking those steps because his target is remove the evil to rescue humanity, including to rescue his church. Go through the other reasons much more quickly. Second reason, very fast. Why should we trust Jesus when he uses his power? Because Jesus doesn't give this power to any human being. He rebukes Thyatira for tolerating Jezebel, but he doesn't say, okay, now you take her out. In that sense, the church is called to exercise spiritual authority to make sure that what we teach and preach, what we practice, is what God has said. We're called to teach, to rebuke, to withhold the sacraments, at times to excommunicate, but we never use civil authority, physical authority, We don't physically punish. That's not something that Jesus gives to his church. Why can you trust Jesus when he takes these kind of drastic steps? He's very wise. And he knows who to give power to and who not to. And he does not give this kind of power to any of us. He takes it for himself. Third reason is that Jesus doesn't start with judgment. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I gave her time. The implication here is that in some way, through someone, he made her aware of her error. He confronted her. And he called her to repent, to turn back to himself. Not only did he reach out to her, didn't have to do that, but he did. Not only did he do that, he gave her time. Time to consider, time to rethink what she was doing, time to choose his ways over her own. She refused, but he gave her a chance. That's part of the holiness of his judgment. He loves his people. When he sees his people in sin, he goes on a rescue mission to get them back because that's what it means to love like God loves. It means that he refuses to leave people in sin, continue to do the kinds of things that hurt them or that will hurt others. And so he uses his power to love, to call people out of what they're doing for their good and the good of the church. Now, obviously, his preference is that people will choose to work with him, that we will repent. But if we refuse to do that, he doesn't just throw up his hands and say, oh, well, I tried. Guess I just have to tolerate them now. No, when we do that, he takes it to the next level, whatever that level is. We have some choice for how we deal with sin in our lives, for how it gets purged out of us. What we don't have a choice about is to hang on to our sin. Somewhere between now and when we meet him, all of our evil will be gone because that's how he uses his power. And if that still doesn't help you trust him, then think forth about who it is who's saying this. This is the one who told us in chapter 1 that he died but is alive forevermore. He died, which means he willingly set aside his bronze feet for a time. And he let the bronze claws crush and trample and devour him. He let the kingdoms of this world arrest him, torture him, nail him to a cross to die. It wasn't the worst that he endured. Because while he was there, he carried our sin and our wickedness with him our tolerance of anything that's opposed to God. And it was there that the bronze feet of God, the holiness of God, his own holiness, crushed him, trampling down our wickedness in him until it was all gone. Jesus took on far more suffering to remove evil for his people experienced much more violence in purging sin and evil from his people than anything that you and I will ever go through. Why would you trust him to use his power wisely for the sake of the church? Because when it was you or him, he didn't use his power to save himself. He used it to save you and me instead. If that's how he used it before, you can trust him when he uses it now because he's going to use it in the same kind of way. 
that he'll only use his power for what is necessary for your best interest, regardless of how strongly he has to use it. So if you've gotten a little too cozy with this world, with how your culture thinks about things, please believe Jesus knows it. He searches minds and hearts. But please also believe that he cares about it because he cares about you. He knows the insanity of what you're doing, that you want to be liked by the people around you more than you want to be loved by this God who would let God's power tromp all over him, who would do that so that he could get rid of what keeps you from him. <laughs> you look at that and you think, how could you want anything else other than him? To want something else would be insane, right? To compromise what God has said because you want someone to like you, because you want someone to care about you who's going to care about you way less than God does. What is that? That's crazy. And Jesus knows it. Not only does he know it, if you're his child, if you're part of his family, he will find ways to talk with you about it. So that what? So that you can repent. So that you can regain your spiritual sanity. So that you love him more than you love anything else. If you already do love him that way, then verse 25, hold fast to him. If you don't, if something's gotten in the way, open your heart to him. Let him talk to you. And then take him up on his offer to repent. Lord Jesus, you are beyond anything that we can imagine. Your power, your holiness is off the charts. Lord, we get little glimpses of it and it it's terrifying. And yet we see your love and we see that it is well beyond what we've ever imagined. Lord, resurrect our hearts. Revive us inside so that we see you and want you more and more. So we start to want you a little bit like you want us. In Jesus' name, amen.